Okay, I think we will get going nice and promptly. Um, welcome to the LSE Middle East Center's conference, Iraq on the eve of elections, or welcome back if you've already been with us for the previous panels. Um, my name is Jessica Watkins. I am currently an analyst for the IIIM, uh, the Accountability for War Crimes Committed in Syria. I'm also a visiting research fellow at the Middle East Center, and until earlier this year, I worked on the conflict research program on Iraq and Syria. Um, our third panel of the day is on state violence in Iraq, the PMF and prospects for accountability. Uh, it's great to see so many of you and more joining all the time. And I know that a lot of the attendees are very well informed on Iraq. So um, I expect to have a good um, question and answer session. Um, before we get going, please bear in mind that the session will be recorded. And we have three panel speakers today. Um, each of them is going to speak for a brief seven minutes. Uh, and that leaves us 35 minutes for Q&A at the end of the session. If you have a question, please use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen to submit it. Um, and I will try to pose as many questions as possible at the end on your behalf. Um, you don't need to wait until the speakers have finished to submit your questions. It's good to have a few lined up. Um, on a Zoom panel. Uh, to our Arabic speaking attendees, there is English Arabic interpretation provided for this session. To access this, you can click on the interpretation button uh, on the bottom right-hand corner of your screen and choose the appropriate language. Assalamu alaikum, Sayyidati wa Sayyidati, marhaba bikum. Yemkunukum ikhtiyar istima ala jalsa bil arabi um, so I'd like to welcome our speakers, um, who many of you may know. Um, firstly, we have Velkis Ville, who is a senior researcher with the Conflict and Crisis Division at Human Rights Watch. Before taking up the role, Ville worked for three and a half years as Human Rights Watch senior Iraq researcher, and before that was the Kuwait, Qatar and Yemen researcher based in Sana'a for three and a half years. Previously, Ville worked at the Geneva-based World Organization Against Torture, carrying out advocacy and trainings on torture prevention in Libya. Ville received her bachelor's degree from Harvard University, her graduate diploma in law from City University London, and her LLM in human rights and humanitarian law from the University of Essex. Uh, Inner Rudolph is a research fellow at the King's College London International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation. She's currently completing her PhD at the War Studies Department there. Uh, it focuses on the evolving relationship between the Iraqi state and the PMF as a state-sanctioned paramilitary umbrella group. Rudolph is also a partner at the Candid Foundation in Berlin and an associate fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at the German Council for Foreign Relations. And finally, Renard Mansour is a senior research fellow and project director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House. He's also a senior research uh, fellow at the American University of Iraq, Suleimani, and a research fellow at Cambridge Security Initiative based at Cambridge University. Renard was previously a lecturer at LSE he taught the international relations of uh, the Middle East, and from 2013, he held positions as lecturer of international studies and supervisor at the Faculty of Politics, also at Cambridge University. 
So um, without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to Belkis to begin with her reflections. Belkis. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for, for having me and inviting me on this panel. And uh, you know what I what I wanted to talk about is how we look at and think about these elections in the current context that we have in Iraq when it comes to the human rights space in general and very specifically space around freedom of expression, um, freedom of assembly, and, and really the ability for people to openly um, be critical of, of, of government and others in, in power. I think this is an important starting point because of the fact that these elections really stem from calls in that regard. I mean, it was the protest movement that started in October 2019 that was really based on calls for there to be space for people to be critical of authorities, critical of the decisions that authorities were taking, and uh, critical of other groups uh, who wield a lot of power in Iraq and are able to operate sort of unaccountably and with impunity. Um, that you know, led to one prime minister stepping down that then led to this interim government that we've had in place and, and ultimately does lead to these elections. And one of the key calls that protesters were making at the time was for uh, the prime minister at the time to step down and uh, you know, the need for essentially a new social construct and contract to be established between the people of Iraq and, and those in power, because there was a feeling among protesters that the social contract is fundamentally broken and that the priority for those in power in Iraq is not to respect and empower the rights of Iraqis, um, but instead in, in many cases is really to reap the rewards of being in power in Iraq. Um, which is, of course, why you saw a lot of calls against corruption, uh, as, whether, as well as other calls against um, other forms of abuse of power. The, the really sad reality is that I don't think these elections will be able to deliver on any of that. And, and the reason that I say that is because out of these protests, uh, you know, one, one thing that we got was hundreds of protesters that were killed. Um, either directly at protests or uh, in the vicinity of protests, uh, either going home um, or traveling to protests in the morning. And, and we also saw, uh, you know, other, other abuses, including uh, extrajudicial killings and forced disappearances, arbitrary arrest, all of which, in, in, in my view, was really um, a broad wave of intimidation tactics that were being used by many different groups and individuals in power to intimidate and silence protesters and calls for this essentially renewing of a, of a social contract or changing of the social contract. And, and that had a, a real effect. Um, you know, I, I can say from my own personal experience uh, that many um, protest individuals, participants who then eventually became protest leaders and people who were very clearly um, talking about their desire to engage in politics and to play a role in changing the future of Iraq and the future of this relationship between the government and Iraqi citizens, these are people that no longer, uh, several years later, um, are, are, are actually going to play that role. This is because either they were you know, victims who were ultimately targeted and killed, 
or they have gone into hiding or they have left the country. And, and, and as I said, this is something personally that I've seen where I know of, of, of many individuals who at the time really expressed a desire to be engaged in politics and in these elections, but are simply no longer in their areas of origin, or if they are, they don't feel safe enough to actually play a role in politics. And so I think there, you know, it's, it's gonna be a real disappointment. And I, and I was in Baghdad a few weeks ago and, and did a round table with about 20 young human rights activists. They're a group of people that I, I, I meet with every time I'm in Baghdad and engage with very often. And, and a group of people who are very interested in, in, in politics writ large. And we were sitting at a big table and I went around the table asking each of them, and they're from all parts of Iraq, to talk about what their current main human rights uh, concerns and interests and priorities are. And after over two hours of speaking, I noticed that not a single person had mentioned the elections. And this was just a few weeks ago, as I said. And so I asked the question, what about the elections? And all of them responded to me by saying, yeah, what about the elections? They're entirely meaningless to us. We're not, we're not looking at to them for any kind of change or, or uh, we're not looking at these elections as being able to produce anything real and tangible that we're going to see in a positive light. So I thought that was very sad to hear, but, but, but makes a lot of sense given the fact that these elections, I think, aren't going to be able to provide a platform for these critical, you know, young, energized, uh, new political voices. You know, the, the, the problems that, we, that, that we're seeing, I've, I've now mostly focused on talking about Baghdad and the center south of the country, but there's also um, this, this wave of um, repression and a, and a closing of space in, in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. For many years that, that I've been covering Iraq, I've seen um, instances where mainly journalists, but also other protesters and, and government critics have been attacked by the political parties in, in, in the Kurdistan region um, for either you know, writing things, saying things that are critical, or for actually going out onto the streets and using their bodies to show that they're, they're angry or critical of the political parties. And in the past, I saw crackdowns um, of these kind of um, initiatives, but often, you know, the the authorities would would in some way try and cover up those crackdowns or try and you know diminish um, the 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 reports of abuse that were coming out. Suggest that you know we were hearing exaggerated um, accounts of what's happened, and and that's something that I think. Uh, it quite concerningly has changed. You know, in this last year, we've seen uh, a set of uh, prosecutions of a range of in individuals who you could broadly call a group of journalists and activists critical of political parties who have been now prosecuted um, in, in KDP-controlled areas. And these are individuals where you know, the trials were wildly flawed in terms of due process rights. It was very, very clear from the charges and the evidence being presented in court that this was really just about, um, uh, you know, a political party going after individuals because it didn't like their views and their criticism, but not because they were actually carrying out criminal acts. And, uh, and yet, you know, in this case, the Kurdistan regional government was actually happy to kind of um, flaunt these trials. Now, you know, all of the international diplomatic missions were present that, that have a presence in, in, in northern Iraq. 
the UN was present, the courtroom was full of international observers. And yet, um, you know, even with all of that increased scrutiny, there was no effort made by the, the KRG to actually ensure that these trials were were based on real charges and real evidence and that the due process rights of the defendants were met. And I think that really represents to me a very concerning change and a lack of interest in the side of the Kurdistan regional government to, to, to continue with a narrative um, that it is indeed rights compliant. And it's sort of dropping that mantle, mantle and showing you know, the international community, we, we don't care if you you see very blatantly that we are not rights compliant. So I think all of that is really important to take into account as we move into these elections, because I think all of that together really diminishes the, the ability of these elections to bring forward candidates who can actually push for, for meaningful change and a, a country that, that better uh, protects the rights of its citizens. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Berkis, for uh, keeping to time perfectly. And um, you really highlight an extremely important point that for many of those involved in the protest movement less than two years ago, they now see the mainstream um, electoral process as being largely irrelevant uh, in terms of their participation in, in civic life. Um, and, and also the alarming trend of uh, increasing political repression in the um, Kurdish region of Iraq. Um, so I'm going to uh, hand it over to Ina, uh, who I believe is going to talk about the institutional embeddedness of the, the hashed in Iraq. Ina. Thank you, Jess, for this introduction. And um, I doubt that I would be um, more optimistic than um, Balkis. As we have heard today, um, the more the lines between the legal and the extra legal aspects seem blurred, the um, grimmer the prospects for holding accountable actors such as the PMF accountable. And unfortunately, we've also witnessed that uh, labeling them as state or non-state or be even uh, hybrid entities has not helped us understand why these networks of power to call on Renat here have uh, managed to evade uh, responsibility and to um, evade um, to evade accountability. Dissecting the PMF's narrative, this is where my research has been focused, has allowed me to identify different roles which the PMF like, has been playing in their pursuit of symbolic capital. So for example, to portray the paramilitary as a unique, as an Iraqi phenomenon, um, their key stakeholders have um, played with varying success um, different roles. And uh, those are the four main roles that I have identified. Those are the roles of an inclusive national guard, of a pro bono service provider, of a state keeper, but also as a holy warrior. So just to illustrate, by keeping up appearances as an inclusive national guard or a civil defense force, they have sought to promote a non-sectarian character. They have also tried to signal their um, keenness to forge alliances with ethnic and religious minorities. In their role as a state um, keeper or as a protector of the state, um, the PMFs have presented themselves as a reliable coercive agency with the capacity to protect the established order or the established power sharing deal. 
Um, and also, uh, last but not least, in their um, mandate as a holy warrior, they have um, sought to exercise uh, religiously sanctioned violence, often and sometimes in the name of the clerical establishment in Najaf. As a pro bono service provider, they have uh, sometimes contributed to um, relieving the state's overburdened administrative apparatus as we also witness in the course of uh, the COVID um, campaign, but they also never failed to advertise their efforts on the ground and their hands-on engagement. Um, actually, like my, my, my field research has also revealed that um, a lot of the different currents constituting the backbone of the PMF have also competed among each other for the rightful interpretation of all of those roles. Um, for instance, the Atabat Hashads uh, have, in their interpretation of the Holy Warrior Mandate, they have complied with the national focus of Grand Ayatollah Assistani's fatwa. On the other hand, the um, factions, the so-called Fasail and Muqawama, have had a different interpretation of the Holy Warrior role and have used this as a mandate to expand their operations also outside of Iraq's borders and to uphold a transnational resistance cause. In their sense, their um, commitments to the Holy Warrior mandate has uh, allowed them to actively challenge the state's official foreign policy line. And perhaps the most contested role of all remains the role of a statekeeper. Um, paradoxically, the perceived weakness or fragility of the state has allowed the resistance-oriented um, factions or the so-called Iran-aligned formations to justify their existence outside of the formal chain of command. And um, interestingly, in their mind, preserving operations, preserving these resistance operations outside of the control of the state has been the only way to protect Iraq or their vision for Iraq, which they see still see as preferably as a pillar of a transnational resistance alliance. So presenting themselves as protectors of state sovereignty has also allowed them to rationalize the use of coercive power against all sorts of threats against the established order, be those Jaukara or, for example, foreign troops perceived as overstepping their mandate on the ground. In contrast, um, the uh, affiliations, once again affiliated with, with the Marcha'iyah, have propagated a different version of a state keeper, of a state builder. In a symbolic move, they, for example, rejected the invitations to participate or to decorate the military parade of the Hashad in Yala. And a representative of Ansar al-Marcha'iyah only recently even dared to openly criticize the so-called foreign allegiances of, of the Mukawamist formations. So this has been a very interesting development. In the last days, they also organized a conference in Karbala, where they announced their endeavors to provide security for the Arba'in pilgrimage, and they also proclaimed themselves as state builders. As Marcin also mentioned earlier, this like building or constructive aspect has been also very present in their narrative. But divisions are also observable within the so-called uh, more uh, homogeneously perceived Iran-aligned current. For example, different PMF-affiliated uh, political uh, outgrowths, such as Sadiqun, Afasayb Ahal al-Haq, or the newly established uh, Hukuk movement of the Kataib Hezbollah-affiliated um, uh, Mohamed Hussein, 
have uh, have competed with each other in political campaigning. So each of them has claimed for themselves a moral superiority and also a commitment to combat corruption. Um, the um, maybe the in the undesired effect of this uh, open displays of dissonance uh, is the. Um, inclination of, of, the, of the international community to resort to wishful thinking, and in some cases to even start speculating about different disintegration scenarios of the whole conglomerate. But um, recent history and also the um, evidence provided by the um, failed uh, arrest campaign of Qatar Hezbollah fighters and also the temporary detention of Qasem Muslim. Um, clearly reminds us that uh, the more worrisome elements uh, within the broader PMF framework uh, have been exhibiting a steady learning curve. They have learned how to paint over internal rivalries, and they have also learned how to successfully intimidate uh, opposition. And when all seems lost, to adopt a wait and see approach and just work to discredit um, any viable political alternatives. So to turn the tables around, like why has this strategy in the first place uh, succeeded so far to, um, to prevent accountability? Both the PMFs as well as their um, allies within the ruling elites, but also um, advocates of the PMF embedded in state structures uh, share a common interest of safeguarding the status quo. Um, dilemmas within the broader PMU PMF uh, network uh, regarding their future trajectory in that sense even resemble the contradictory visions of statehoods uh, championed by different representatives of the ruling elites and of Iraqi decision makers. So for some of them, the availability of um, Praetorian Guard elements at their services is still an attractive insurance policy. Um, others, on the other hand, perceive the PMF as an inconvenient, as an uncomfortable reality and attributes that to um, their alleged proxy relationship with external sponsors. And um, in, in my opinion, maybe the largest segments are those who have a rather uh, sober and realistic assessment um, of the liabilities that uh, arise with an independent PMF, but they would still prefer to condone the situation as it is. Um, and, and, and this, in my opinion, is, uh, because they consider the added value of preserving a flexible mode of cooperation with the PMF in view of the shared stakes in the political process. So as long as um, this continues to be the case, I personally um, don't see a lot, of, uh, a lot of opportunities to exert political pressure and to uh, hold also perpetrators of human rights violations from within the larger PMF network accountable. On the contrary, um, I would uh, rather predict them picking different roles from their agile uh, role repertoire uh, from these uh, four roles meant specifically to help them accumulate symbolic capital and to juggle uh, both their pro-state and, and, and pro-people identity. So uh, all of the maybe even future displays of, of, of disagreement that we might see in the course of the election campaign can also serve as a smokescreen, can serve to distract our attention, and can also allow them to blur the lines between their ideological rootedness and also their power maximizing maneuvers uh, within the political game. Thank you.
Thank you, Anna. Um, and you, uh, listening to you, you really um, highlight to me the way the dynamics have changed in terms of how the PMF have had to work to market themselves in um, their changing strategies for uh, capitalizing on um, religious moral capital. And um, in comparison to the 2018 elections, um, fresh from the victory of Daesh, um, it really has evolved a lot. Um, and that's something that perhaps we can pick up in the question and answers. Um, but I'm going to move straight on to Renard, um, who I think will probably pick up where you left off, Inna, uh, also talking about the Hasht and uh, their integration with the security forces in Iraq. Um, Renard, take it away. Uh, great. Thanks, uh, Jess, and thanks uh, to Inna Belpace and LSE. Uh, for this conversation, which I've, I found really interesting. I think rather than focusing on the PMF as such, I, I'd rather focus on accountability. Um, because, you know, although we talk about state violence and the PMF, of course, as Belt Peace has mentioned, the PMF is just one example of, 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 of state violence and, and the Iraqi state as such to be powerful in the state, every actor requires violence. Of course, there is a focus on the PMF because of its prominence and, and how powerful it has become, particularly since 2018, but many other actors as well use violence. Uh, but I wanted to pick up on, you know, looking back at 2018, uh, some of the things that we learned from that election and what we've learned now moving into another election. And of course, you know, having, you know, many of us have, have recently been to Baghdad, government formation, usually begins even before elections. So we're already beginning to see uh, those negotiations. But nonetheless, I think two key lessons came out of 2018. Um, and again, I'm focusing on accountability because I don't think we should be focusing on the PMF as such to understand the roots of the problem. Uh, but I think we should be looking at bigger societal problems uh, and, and, and the problems of state society relations in Iraq. So the first one was obviously this friction between the people and the elite. And of course, during the CRP, uh, and, and other programs worked on, on that as a key lesson from 2018. People aren't voting and the turnout will be low. They do not believe in the political system. And immediately after the election in 2018 in Basra, protests sparked. And really for the first time, the state used violence to, to kill its own Shia base in that number. And then we see a continuation of that from October 2019 to today. I think the second big lesson from 2018 to today to think about is another experience that we've had from that election, which is reformists in government, right? So, so since 2018, the two prime ministers we've had technically, and many of the ministers, although this goes a bit before, have been technocrats. There have been this championing of, you know, if you can just put good people in those positions, things can change. And so I think there are lessons that we can take from both, both from where, how far have we gone on the problem of people versus their leaders? And how far have we gone on the issue of can the state actually reform itself incrementally by putting people inside of it? To begin, I think it's important to look at, you know, again, violence as a system. And since 2018, very clearly, the elite as a whole have lost both ideological and to some extent economic capital to be able to control a large population. As uh, Sajad was saying earlier, the demographics are, are clear. A million Iraqis each, each year are, are, are coming, you know, being born and, and the population increasing. That elite that used to be able to either give jobs or to claim to be either 
you know, anti-Ba'ath, anti-Saddam, pro-reform, anti-corruption have not been able to do that. And the consequence of that has been that they've had to rely more and more on violence. So violence is how stability and control is being kept, along with, to some extent, the higher oil price and, and, and some other uh, ideological points that, that INAP made. But I really think the violence is really the key lesson since the last election and going into this election. Now, linked to that violence, of course, you had the big murder killings in the squares. You had, you know, 600 or more, as Belkis said, killed uh, from October 2019, tens of thousands injured. But I was speaking to someone and someone told me this recently. Um, after this violence in the squares, I think it's in the 30s, the amount of the number of individuals who have been assassinated from 2019 to today outside of the squares. Right. I think it was like 34, 36, something like that. And my first sort of impression was that's a very low number. But then I thought about it and kind of reflecting on it, and, and we've all been sort of talking about it, it really tells you a few things. But the one thing that I wanted to focus on was how this is a targeted campaign. It's systematic. It's not reckless. It's not just violence for the sake of violence. It's not tit for tat even. It is a systematic uh, suppression of activism and civil society uh, as, as one official told me uh, earlier this year to stop protests before they reach the streets, to not have mass protests anymore. So there's been a, a top down to stop the mobilizing. Of course, not all of them killed, as Berkeley said, some of them have been relocated, but nonetheless removed, as well as through the squares being removed by, this, uh, by the prime minister and his political party supporters. Um, and so very clearly the violence is there and it's, it's, it's very real. Now, on the uh, uh, on link to that, you know, this idea of reformist in government, everyone knows, and it's because we're talking about the security sector, SSR hasn't worked, it won't work. But what about reform more generally, political reform? What we've seen are these technocrats come in, into the security sector, into the any sector you want, economics, but really been unable to genuinely reform the system, partly because they've been, you know, uh, these islands surrounded by corruption and, and therefore ineffective, but also partly because some of them have actually become part of the system, right? And so anti-corruption, enforcing accountability is part of the political process, right? The committee that goes against corruption, how, I would suggest we look into how they're going after corruption. What types of violence are being used against corruption? Is there rule of law? present? Where is the money that is being taken from the corrupt going? These are all questions we should be asking before we just take political leaders for their words all across the Iraqi government. And I think that's something we should reflect on looking back um, and, and, and really try and understand how better to strengthen if there are reformists in the system that are not powerful and have refused corruption, but therefore remain weak, how do you strengthen the collective tissues of those reformists? Because really, these are the roots of the problems. The roots of the problems are that incremental reform isn't working. And before we even talk about a topic like SSR or accountability, it's necessary that we look at those roots. And finally, on the protests, I think since 2018, there was a bit of a rush. Let's, you know, let's, let's create political parties. Let's get all these youth into, uh, political, into a political uh, agenda. However, you know, it was clear from the beginning that the protests that erupted in 2018 in Basra and 2019 onward throughout the center and south 
were a reaction to decades and decades of misgovernance. They were not necessarily going to become politicians. So, and I know that a lot of the international actors focused on how do we support civil society? And I think that was important, but what's necessary is not just supporting civil society, but actually addressing the issues that they have. Focusing on early elections when clearly that's not the root of the problem is not how you go about it. There is a system that is unaccountable, that is corrupt, corrupt to the point where it's politically sanctioned, as Toby, Dodge, and I have, have been working on. Not much has been done on that. So you cannot support and, 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 and feed into civil society, rush them into a process, a very process that they themselves are against. And I think that's the biggest lesson from the last election to this election. And I'll leave it at that. The lesson being, I think the protesters have diagnosed the problem at its core, which is it, the problem isn't with one leader or one uh, party. And the solution therefore isn't with one leader or one party. It has to be systematic reform because otherwise violence will continue because violence is protecting the interests of those, all of the elite across the spectrum. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you so much, Renard. Um, and you have really opened it up and um, really addressed the more uh, broader systematic um, issues with the Iraqi political system. And of course, that's something that the conflict research program has been looking at in uh, different um from different dimensions over the past four years um, and really grappling with the question of um, what does political participation mean now and how do people expect, what do they expect from the state and um, if they don't really expect anything from the electoral process then how can they um, alternatively um, make any gains. Um, so I see we have a number of questions um, and there seems to be a nice distribution to our speakers. I'm going to actually start with the first one, um, which was from Majid Al-Yasri. Um, and I think perhaps this goes to Belkis and Renard. Um, so the, the protest movement is a heterogeneous hybrid collection of young people. It has no unified agenda or clear organizational hierarchy. Will they continue post-election? Um, and what is the likelihood that they'll assume some kind of leader, leaderless movement model? Um, Berkis, if you'd like to comment on that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that I have um, an answer to that because I think a lot is going to depend on what happens in the elections. Um, you know, will the elections, and I'd say that this is... Um, less likelihood of happening, but will the elections see a new government coming into power that really is able to get a handle on kind of the wanton violence, but then also this very um, uh, sort of concerted effort that Renaud was describing to target and to take out critics in, in, a, in a way that, that, that really is sort of um, uh, targeting people across the board. Um, you know, if if there was a government that was able to come in and, and show very clearly that it was able to, to address and tackle that in a serious manner, um, you know, then, then I actually think you might see more protests because people would feel empowered and safe enough again to express their discontent on a range of other things like basic access to electricity, affordable housing, water, you know, anti-corruption measures. Whereas if instead we get a government that is completely incapable or 
you know, even worse than that is actually, you know, very much part and parcel of the forces that are carrying out this campaign um, to intimidate and to silence and to kill. Um, I think I think you you won't necessarily see that protest movement continuing because you know the reality is that people have seen that there is not just a risk to you know to their own um, you know uh, freedom for example the you know the ability or the the lack of arrest but actually that they're you know they're risking their lives every time they they leave their home and go out onto the street to protest and that of course is something that people start to factor in and is something that will fundamentally discourage a protest movement from starting again. Thank you. Um, Renard, would you like to add to that? Sure. I mean, you know, they say it's 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 hard to predict uh, elections, but I think something that's very clear and easy to predict is the government will most likely continue uh, in its present form of repressing activism and, and activists. I mean, we've had a prime minister who many of us have known for many years and whose heart was very close to some of the demands of the protesters. Um, you know, and yet under his reign, you've had some of the biggest abuses of, 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 of you know, violence against activists with political parties and groups that are in the system and, and working with the system. And I think linked to that, you know, just do a mapping of the security sector, look at the CTS, look at the intelligence, look at all of the security, look at in where employees are coming from. And you're beginning to see some of the compromises that are being made for government formation. Because at the, at the end of the day, the prime minister or any government in Iraq, their constituency isn't the people. It's going to be the political parties that determine their, their, their victory or their success. So elections to some extent don't really matter. And this is why Iraqis think it's not, you know, what's the, what, what's the point of, of, of voting? So I think that is very clear that this will continue um, because it's unsustainable for, for the way that the elite gain votes to continue in, in sort of where an economy is hitting uh, a brink. Thank you. Um, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of questions that I'm going to come to in a minute about the PMF, um, but perhaps um, to stay with you, Belkis, um, Toby has a question. Um, could you say more about the campaign of assassinations of democratic activists after the Tishreen demonstrations up to today? Who's been targeted by whom and to what end? Um, and what does this new uh, use of violence mean for Iraqi politics, in your view? So, um, you know, Renaud, you had mentioned that number that was sort of in the 30s. I, I, I think we we probably have the same source of, of that number, which was um, something that I heard when I was in Baghdad a few weeks ago, which was that I think it was like, thir yeah, 30-ish, 35 people within the last year, just the last year, um, have been targeted and killed. And these are sort of broadly speaking activists, protesters. Um, then the number goes up to 50, where it was a combination of killed and attempted killings. And then if you include disappearances in that, it goes up to 70. And um, the person who was talking to me about that statistic, similar to what Renaud said, was saying, oh, well, you know, that's not that's that's fairly low. And I was shocked by by that response because you know we're talking about a country with a small um civil society you know very tightly knit civil society community and if you're talking about 30 people in a year having been targeted and killed to me that's massive that's really 
massive and suggests that as as you had said, Renaud, this really is um, an incredibly um, thoughtful uh, campaign to try and take out the voices of anyone who sort of can can garner support in a community to push back on those in power, uh, abusing that power. Um, so, you know, we we know we know some of the profiles of these individuals. I don't know all, all 30 of them, for example, but it's, you know, the cases that I do know, it's mostly young people, um, mostly people who quite openly wanted to be affiliated with the protest movement, or if they lived in areas where there weren't ongoing protests, they were showing that support through what they were posting online. So a lot of it was, you know, views being expressed on social media. Um, and, and a certain percentage of those people, which I assume is part of the reason that they were targeted, were individuals who really, um, you know, potentially had a future in politics um, uh, and, and, and would could have played a role in influencing politics and public opinion. Um, so I think this is really sort of catastrophic to, to the future of Iraq. Um, I don't know who steps into the place of these people now that they've been killed. You know, um, I, I can imagine most people would not want to step into that place and that position uh, of open criticism because now they know what it would cost them, which is their life. Um, so I can only imagine it's going to mean that the few voices that don't represent these major institutions in power, these major uh, institutions that abuse power, um, that would have been the voices, sort of the independent voices, the voices that were pushing back on abuse of power, that those those have basically that basically been snuffed out or are being snuffed out. Thank you very much. Um, so we have a number of questions uh, specifically about the PMF. Um, in a, I'm going to uh, pose these to you. So we have one question um, uh, related to, you know, to what degree is the PMF um, like a failed version of the uh, revolution, Iranian Revolutionary Guard? Um, and one of the reasons that it hasn't been successful in emulating the um, Revolutionary Guard is because of Iran's influence on the polit political landscape in Iraq. So I guess, do, do you think that's accurate? Um, and then another on which uh, uh, Renard might also like to address about um, what is the relationship between the PMF and the security forces um, in oppressing the protest movements? Are the PMF uh, deployed to oppress them or are their members recruited individually of the security forces? So what kind of integration or um, encroachment is there um, with the state um, security forces? And that's from Keiko uh, Sake. Um, so Ina, I'll turn to you first. Yeah, um, to start with the last question, um, I think it's very interesting that um, their strategy of um, presenting themselves as someone who is protecting the order, protecting the status quo, um, quite backfired in the course of the suppression of the protest movement. Because at the end, they were not just like sanctioned by their constituencies, like for being the hashed, suppressing protesters, but for siding with the state, for siding with the dysfunctional apparatus that was currently like um, clashing with uh, unarmed protesters and uh, that was uh, about to um, sacrifice a lot of innocent lives just to protect a certain power sharing mechanism. And I think like that was uh, a huge reputational damage uh, for, uh, for a lot of the PMFs. 
Um, even though on the ground, people do differentiate sometimes, like they would speak of, of militias without naming, for example, the hashtag per se. But I guess that in a lot of local communities, there was still like this expectation for, uh, for the hashtag as a whole, as a brand, to live up more to its grassroots DNA and uh, to be more supportive of, of, of the people like who also represent like their rank and file. Um, and, and I would like to address another question, which was uh, about the effects on their support base uh, in the course of the suppression of the protest movement. And here, um, I, I agree with Renat, I don't think it's, it's a hashtag only problem. I think the suppression of the protest movement affected the support bases of all the parties. But uh, in terms of uh, how are they going to fare in election, I think there is a huge difference between how the people perceive them, like if there is like still this love and admiration, how much of it is left uh, that was there maybe like in, in, in the peak of the counter ISIS campaign and how much is there now. And on the other hand, like what does it mean to be, uh, uh, to, to be a pragmatic and to sort of like continue to, to work with them and to establish some sort of a functioning relationship with them. And I think like here, uh, it very much like depends on class, of course, like those who are more dependent on, on patronage networks uh, would be uh, more forced to uh, look past uh, their criticisms or maybe like even their disappointments. Uh, with the way different political parties with, with armed wings behaved and, uh, and, and, and to continue to tap into uh, the informal services and, and, and perks that are being offered to them. Um, and, and the other question about the Revolutionary Guard, um, in, in my interviews, um, a lot of them uh, actually officially claim that that's not a possible scenario for Iraq. Um, even though, uh, depending on, on their affiliation with different brigades, they would like still uh, admit that uh, it might have been an attractive option, but something that's not achievable in the Iraqi context in view of, of, the, plur of the political plur pluralism within Iraqi society. But also, I don't think like they need to become or to evolve into a version of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards um, to be able still like to profit from the established order. Um, thanks very much, Inna. Um, and is your take similar, Renard, on that, on that point? Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, if we think about the elections, we need to, I think, ask, uh, why is it that if there is this massive movement against the PMF, particularly among its base, why are they predicted to do really well, if not win? this election um clearly they have there's something there um although you know there's fraud and all these issues they do have patronage um and it's not just it's not just Fetih when we talk about pmf there's many groups it, it's 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 also inclusive of Qaquq and others as well as Nuri al-Maliki's Dawlat al-Qanun state of law as well as there's the Christian quota the Shabak quota. And so when you look at the parliamentary power the PMF has, it's based on patronage, right? And so then we, we, we need to ask, where does that sort of, where does that come from? Particularly in, an, in a time where, as we say, the PMF, but also every other Iraqi leader has lost ideological capital. I cannot think of any leader right now that's making ideological moves to try and maintain 
cohesion, it seems more and more to either be through coercion or to some extent through patronage politics and economics, much more than 2018, when there was actually, to some extent, a policy debate, if that was, we have liberated you from, uh, you know, from, from, from Daesh or, or other ideological attempts made at the time. It's, it's much less now. I mean, these groups have lost a lot of that power. And so here it becomes interesting because then you see the debates within the PMF, right? Kitab Hezbollah, for example, which is now running in the election, it has for a long time been not had a base, right? It's been a kind of vanguard network, but it has realized and many of these groups have realized how good it can be to compete in elections and become wealthy, right? You can man as many checkpoints as, 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 as you want. You could do as much of the so-called informal economics as you want, but if you, and, and, and this has been said to me, if you control a ministry or a few ministries, you become the, you, you go to another level of, of wealth and power. And so there's a competition over the base, right? And so that's an internal competition between groups like Asab al-Haq, which have been doing very well, which went from one seat in 2014 to uh, to 15 season 18 expected to do better this time and Kitab Hezbollah because it needs to take a base away from the PMF. Then you have the Sudras base and there's a reason why uh, the Sudras wanted to delay this election uh, because they realized that within the base and particularly the younger portion of that base is losing the ideological capital that used to equate the leader Muqtada Sadr with for example his father. And, and, and so the Sudras losing ideological means that that base is up for grabs in a way. And so initiatives like the enforcing the civil service to vote or all of these different strategies are really a competition for a base that's already there, that's shrinking, by the way, as more and more Iraqis don't vote. But that is the key to power. And so 2018 taught both the Sudras and the, the PMF that winning an election or being at least one of the top parties can make you incredibly wealthy. And this links to your question on the security sector, which is to say, you know, a lot of focus recently has been on how well the Sudras have done. You know, the, the number is almost 200 civil servants in, in key positions since, since 2018. You know, that's obviously they had before as well, but ministries are key ministries like health, electricity and, and others. But what about the, you know, the PMF have also been part of the process. And as I say, if you look into the security service, if you look at positions given, they're primarily been given for appeasing the top players. And so elections are important in reinforcing that. And therefore many other groups will compete to try and have their people enter into jobs. So they then can become part of the base that reinforce these leaders. So elections have many purposes. Um, so I think you've answered uh, Miriam's question. She had a question about how PMF linked candidates are expected to fare in the upcoming elections. Um, but uh, you uh, lead quite nicely onto, there's a question from Christopher Blanchard, which is how are competitors positioning with regard to specific deliverables on the presence of foreign military forces, deadlines, um, reduction, maintenance of status quo, how might a more aggressive and specific campaign of targeted sanctions aimed at the activist suppression network affect the dynamics that you've discussed? Um, and maybe we'll come back to you again, Renard, on that. Um, and Belkis, if you'd like to comment or, um, you know, as well afterwards. Sure, I can briefly, and I think I've made my position against sanctions very clear in, in, in some of the work that, that we've been writing. They don't work, even targeted. As we say, it's hard to isolate one unit or one group 
or even one individual as such who is responsible. This is a systemic use of violence. This is a use of violence and force that includes the entire political elite and, and, and is systematic. And so picking off or cherry picking certain individuals to remove what we've learned in the past is that those nodes can be filled up again and that it doesn't actually address the roots of the problem. And in fact, you know, if, if I was to be speaking to someone who works for an international government asking this question, one of the, one of the, the, the things that I would say is sometimes, you know, it's, it's easy to attack the enemy and, and, and sanction the enemy, not easy, but easier, but there are also allies who are part of that system. And, and I think being harder on allies and, and ensuring accountability on allies is, is, has to be part of that because this is all being facilitated by an, a, a pact of, of leaders who, who all believe in the maintenance of a system. Um, Bertis, what's your take on sanctions or on the broader question? I just wanted to piggyback on, on what Renard said um, because I think you're absolutely right you know, there, there's obviously when, when, when killings and targetings are happening, there's, you know, the individual foot soldier on the ground who's sent out to do the targeting. Then there's the person who gave them orders or persons who gave them orders. Then there's sort of the high up command of whatever group that they're affiliated with. Um, but then as, as Renaud's pointing out, it's really about a system that allows for that those kind of acts to happen and to go uh, completely unpunished and you know i've i've spent years not only trying to identify the perpetrators in these attacks um but also to look at why the system is incapable of holding those perpetrators accountable i mean one thing that for years has worried me is the fact that within the judiciary you actually have specialized judges who many many years ago were created to actually hold armed forces accountable. So you had a national security service judge, a PMF judge. And the idea, what I, from what I understand historically, was that these judges were put in place to hold accountable those groups if they abused. So the PMF judge was meant to take on cases of PMF members who perpetrated an abuse. But that's not what happened. These judges now, are used by these groups, groups none of whom have a legal mandate to be detaining. I mean, all of the detentions that they're doing are illegal under the Iraqi system, um, but they use these judges to deal with the people that they detain. So the PMF judge, instead of holding accountable PMF members, is getting detainees from the PMF and holding them accountable. And that shows to you how deep-seated um, this kind of perversion of the of the entire system of accountability really is in Iraq. And the accountability system now is really being used by those that abuse to sanction their abuses rather than as a system developed to, to, to protect those who are being abused, right? And, and, and so I think, you know, it's very, as Renaud said, it's sort of easier in some certain circumstances to say, well, there's evidence that, you know, Katab Hasballah was behind a certain attack or Saab al-Haq. But it's it's much harder to, to, to talk about, you know, all of the fixes you would need to the system that would actually eliminate these abuses from happening uh, going forward. Um, thank you very much. Um, we only actually have a few minutes left. Time goes very quickly uh, when you only have an hour. So um, I, I wanted to turn back to Inna um, with a few more questions on the on the hushed um, 
There were two questions from Mustafa Imrani. Um, he asked, um, do you see the PMF as a raison d'etre for non-state armed groups, Shiite, Sunni or Christian militia? By which I guess uh, you mean is there like their only outlet is the PMF as opposed to integration with the security forces. Um, and another question is uh, the government has approved over $28 million of budget to cover the salaries of 30,000 PMF returnees. Um, how will that, do you think it will play in the favor of PMF political candidates? Um, and do you think it will effectively return or is it a political ploy for, for campaign purposes? Um, you know. Yeah, um, thank you very much. Um, just like to begin with uh, the second question at the end, like also as, as Renan Spilkis mentioned, it, it's about patronage. It's about like really dividing spoils uh, between uh, loyalists, uh, between people they can trust, and also like having uh, advocates for their cause within the system. And um, as I mentioned in the beginning, I think the, big, the biggest problem with, with our approach or like with our assessment of the situation is being still caught like in this like bad non-state versus good state. Because like if we really also look at, at the repressive tactics adopted by, uh, by different uh, elements of, of the Iraqi security forces, we can also look at, at Quwat al-Sadma, uh, where we had huge repression in Basra and they were not PMF even though Ali al-Mashari was uh, affiliated or is affiliated with Qatar Hezbollah, like they were not classically the PMF or uh, the, the uh, murder or the perpetrator of the political assassination of Hisham al-Hashimi, he was also affiliated with uh, Ministry of Interior. So those are official, those are formal state structures. And I think that that's, that's a very important point uh, in order not to uh, lose focus where, where to look at and not to over-prioritize our concerns with, with the PMF. Um, the first question uh, was, can you remind me, please? Um, Sorry, Anna. So the first question was about to what extent do um, minorities, Christian um, yeah. minorities, see the PMF as a raison d'etre? I'm, I'm not sure if they see it as a raison d'etre, but it's definitely a very attractive uh, institutional trajectory that, that the PMF and, and, and perhaps like moreover the PMF under Abu Mahtel Mohandes had like drawn for them. There were a lot of like possibilities to get engaged. Of course, like if you said the right things, you could secure uh, livelihood, you could also secure protection uh, for, for people in your network, for people in your circle. So I think it definitely like provided them like with the scenario where they had like some trusted allies or advocates or, or brokers of power to whom they could turn to. Um, the problem was that after the elimination of, uh, of Mohandas, I, I haven't seen in Abu Fadak at least like this coherent strategy, like to engage with minorities and also like to at least like give them the feeling of ownership within, uh, within the PMF uh, leadership uh, network. Um, brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, but that's it. We are out of time. It goes really quick. But um, it was uh, thank you so much all for your contributions and also for um, some brilliant questions. Um, we hope you can continue with the, the conference. There is another panel at uh, three o'clock UK time, um, five o'clock Iraq time on the struggle for women's legal rights in Iraq. 
Um, so we hope some of you can join for that. But um, I'd like to thank the speakers again for um, their contributions and um, to everybody who took part. Many thanks.